One of the main areas of confusion about the credits for Atari Inc. games is the Atari 5200. Atari's 1982 game console was quickly developed to combat the threat from Intellivision and ColecoVision. It was based on three-year-old hardware, and it was a system that should have been released in 1979. Many of the developer credits for Atari 5200 games are simply not known. When soundtrack specialist made his request on Twitter for GCC credits, he was specifically asking for Atari 5200 credits. Intertwined with the Atari 5200 is the Atari 400, 800, XL, XE, and XEGS. This was Atari's line of magnificent 8-bit computers, and they shared an architecture with the Atari 5200. In fact, the original Atari 400 from 1979 was designed as a game system that could replace the Atari 2600. The 5200 was not 100% compatible with the Atari 8-bit computers. The simplified operating system meant a few changes were required to make the code for the 5200 games work on the Atari 8-bit and vice versa. I personally loved my Atari 8-bit computer. My brother and I received a second-hand Atari 800 for Christmas in 1983, and it literally changed our lives. We started programming it on Christmas evening and never looked back. In fact, I have no idea where I'd be now if it didn't happen. But it wasn't all serious stuff with the Atari the second-hand machine came with loads of games. I was mesmerized by the nearly arcade-perfect versions of Kix, Vanguard, Dig Dug, and many more. It made my 13-year-old self want to learn programming as fast as possible so I could realize my dream of working for Atari making games. Little did I know that many of those very same arcade games I played in my Atari 800 were not created by the Wizards of Silicon Valley, but instead far away in Cambridge, Mass, in the nondescript Athenium House office on 215 First Street, the headquarters of GCC. Lost Credit the Secret Atari Heroes of GCC, Part 2. Here's Doug McRae beginning our conversation about the Atari 5200. Yeah, so, so we, we were asked in somewhat the same way, and the common name you'll see on that a lot is Mike Horowitz. Yeah. Mike kind of headed up uh, the 5200 group um, and, uh, so he, I think did the first cartridge on it, I'm trying to remember whether that was kicks or what he did. Um, kicks you know, is an amazing game. So, um, good I remember, I remember Mike being assigned, Hey, go figure out how to write for the 5200 and, uh, uh choose a cartridge to try doing. And I think it was kicks that he, uh, first did. Oh, that's nice. Now, I know someone specifically asked me about pole position. So Mike Horowitz, Betty Ryan are the are the Atari 5200 pole position developers. So Mike, again, do you remember if any of these games made it to the Atari, uh, the Atari 8-bit computers since they're the same architecture? I, I believe they all did. Okay. Um, that um, we, we did not add them to the list because uh, they were not necessarily another project. Uh, but ended up a different uh, uh, SKU or a uh, different box uh, being sold at retail. Uh, for that matter, uh, I should probably have combined Rubik's Cube and Atari Video Cube since they were pretty much the same code. Each of these 5200, I believe, went out on the 400-800 computer also in a different cartridge. Of course, yeah, the different cartridge size. Um, yeah. That was massive. What did you think of the 5200 when you saw it originally? I had wanted better um, that, uh, you know, we, we had uh, frustrated ourselves over uh, 
programming the 2600 uh, games and keep on going. If only, and then the 5200 came out, and we go, all right, you know, that was once again rushed to market uh, by grabbing what they had on the 400, 800 computer and saying, we have to get a base system out there quickly. And, um, you know, I, I wish engineers could have started on it earlier and give, be given more time and resources to have done it right. Uh, Atari obviously knew how to do it right. They had a great uh, arcade division back then and whatever. Um, but uh, the 5200, I think, had to be put together quickly, and uh, it had a lot of shortcomings. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, you know, obviously the, the, the shortcomings are legendary. Like the, well, it was giant for one. The cartridges were giant too, I guess, because they wanted it to look like it was worth more money. Um, could have been backwardsly compatible with the Atari 400 and 800 if they wanted it to be, which would have been maybe a benefit. Um, the controllers, though, I mean, I see you guys worked on Miss Pac Man and Junior Pac Man. Um, what, it, what would you remember if the controllers were a problem for those games? They were not great. Um, but we really did not have ability to change those. So no. we would have done things similar to what I described on the 2600 in terms of uh, doing the best we can to make the controller work. Uh, but obviously the controller could not be changed out. Yeah. So you've got one here. Phoenix did not ship. Do you remember anything about that? Why Phoenix didn't ship? No. And I've been trying to get in, in contact with John Morassic. When I pulled together this list, uh, um, I first heard from uh, uh, somebody saying, well, we're not sure John worked on it, uh, but I had notes uh, that he did. And then I went and started doing my internet search and found out it did not ship. And I don't know why. Uh, hmm. So uh, I will try filling in those details. At okay. some point. It is fascinating. So, I mean, if you, if you look at, I mean, I, I, I also had an Atari 8-bit computer and a lot of these games you know, were standouts on that as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, 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 at a large portion of my childhood here, Doug, and going, wow, well, you guys made most of it. Um, they, 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 they were, they were significant, you know, significantly better than some other titles that came out, which is, which is pretty good lending itself to me, believing that you guys had sort of some sort of magic going on there, which obviously not, but there's something right. There's some chemistry going on at GCC that helps you guys build this stuff. Let's just for a minute, put the work of GCC into perspective. This is a quote from atarimuseum.com. GCC's programmers would do almost all of the Atari 2600 and 5200 games in 1983 and 1984 for Atari. Atari's programmers in Sunnyvale, California were jumping ship to start their own firms. After another group left to start a magic, another group threatened to leave Atari. Steve Ross, head of Warner Communications, of which Atari was a subsidiary, contacted GCC about doing games for Atari. Not only was GCC able to code games for Atari's consoles, they were doing it in weeks compared to months. Steve Ross, and soon all within Warner, started to call GCC the toaster. Steve Ross was fond of saying, just pop in the game specs to GCC, and out popped a finished game, just like a toaster. Here is Doug McCray. Um, okay, so the 7800, how does this come about? Is it from you or is it from Atari? Kind of a combination. As the 5200 was being introduced, we 
we're looking at and saying that there are things that should have been done significantly better, more starting from scratch. We viewed, A, you had to have 2600 compatibility uh, because you couldn't ask people just to throw out their old library. Some people said, well, I'll just hook up two boxes, but uh, that wasn't a very elegant solution. So we viewed it. Compatibility on the 2600 was important. And then as we started saying, you know, what does it have to do in terms of our gameplay? We went through many, many of the existing arcade games and said, all right, we have to do a reasonable reproduction of each of these arcade games. And we probably had 20 on the list. The toughest one on the list was Robotron. Here is Michael Feinstein. And like, I mean, I would play Robotron during my, you know, lunch break in the middle of the day, and I would break a sweat. I was playing <laughs> that game so intensely. I loved it, you know? So it was just, I think there's an intensity to Robotron that very few games can match. And, anyway. and, and you could not recreate that on the 2600 in any reasonable yeah, way, impossible. right? It, it Even would be, hard it would on like the 5200, too, probably. Yeah, no. But so the thing that I think was great is, just, you know, because one, we had all this experience with all these different kinds of games that, you know, collectively needed all different kinds of capability. And we knew all the constraints of the 2600 and where all the problems were. We're trying to, you know, use a system that primitive. We just, it helped us really think, what, what do we really want? Like, what's our wish list of capabilities? You know, to be able to do all these games and to make them feel really like the arcade game. Here is Doug McRae. So that was it a goal to be able to replicate Robotron? Yes. So uh, Tom Westberg, who is kind of the lead uh, hardware engineer on the 7800 system, was a Robotron fanatic. <laughs> and so uh, the original kind of target spec of what the 7800 had to be able to do was to support 80 sprites uh, on the screen so you could do Robotron. Now let's 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 put that in perspective. The Atari 8-bit computers could do four sprites and four missiles. The 2600 could really do two sprites, two missiles, and a ball. Even the NES was like eight sprites per line was what they could do. But you're talking about 80 sprites on the screen all the same time in arbitrary locations. Correct. <laughs> it, it meant that the whole programming and how you do it was going to be done in a different way uh, with display lists and then eventually display list lists and all kinds of bizarre concepts. Uh, but Robotron was one of the ones really driving it, say, okay, if you can do that, you can do most games. Uh, and so that was kind of the uh, standard bearer for what the hardware had to be able to do. Um, but the, the other fascinating thing we had going for us when we were doing the 7800 is we were developing the hardware and software in parallel, right. uh, which can be a nightmare, but it can also be an amazing opportunity to have the software people make requests saying, okay, so this is what you originally designed in the, or are designing in the hardware, but I can't do this. And so there are some revisions, which are not great for schedule, but some revisions that were being done because we got pretty far into some programming and say, oh, this isn't good enough to do what we need to do. The hardware team worked very closely with the software team to figure out how to get it all uh, working. Here is Steve Golson. 
what we wanted to do was use a completely different type of graphics architecture. Everything was this, what we call player missile graphics. Yeah, like hardware sprite based or something. Hardware right? sprites, right? That's what TIA was. That's what even 5200, the PAM, 400, 800. It was just more sophisticated sprites, players and missiles. Oh, and then you got a background, a play field. And we said, no, let's do it the way arcade games do it. Arcade games had a line RAM. So it was one scan line. There's no way you could do a complete bitmap, right? But it's one scan line bitmap. And that lets you put any number of sprites in there, however long you, you allow yourself to draw sprites. And well, however much time you have, that's how many you get on that line. And then you go to the next line. So, so that's what we look like. So a double buffered scan line, uh, line ramp. So that was our idea for Maria was we'll do it the way the arcade games do it. You could do a little back of the envelope sketch and realize that, wow, we'll be able to display a whole boatload of stuff on the screen. Here is Doug McCray. The, the original kind of mock-up hardware uh, came first. Uh, and a wire wrap version of what it would be doing. The software was being written for several games to start trying that out and also had a software version uh, to try uh, editing the game and whatever. So it was just pieces all coming together in parallel, which um, is a total chaos and a lot of fun and produced <laughs> amazing ability to do graphics that uh, I would not have thought would happen uh, at the uh, very beginning of the project. I believe there was going to be a new sound chip in there. Um, yeah, we, and it didn't we, make we, it in. And do you know what, hap what happened there? Yeah, we, we were working on it. Um, it was coming, it was uh, secondary to the Maria graphic chip that we were working on. Uh, it was called Gumby after Pokey, uh, once again, <laughs> stupid puns. Uh, chip was behind and we were also getting too expensive uh, yeah. for the uh, base unit. And we were getting better sounds out of the TIA than we were on the 2600 because we were more free to use processing power and ROM on that. You've got on this list Ball Blazer and Reshkin Fractus. I know Reshkin Fractus was, was also not, didn't ship. Those are LucasArts games. Did you work with LucasArts on that or was it just copy this? as best you can. No, we were working with LucasArts. I think there are quite a few trips out to California to uh, kind of compare notes and think about what should be done. I wanted to find out, do you know if all of these games were actually finished when before the blow up at Atari, or if there's a possibility that some of them got shipped, not quite finished? I think a few of them were not finished. When we say not finished, uh, there was probably not a lot to go. I think uh, Ballblazer and maybe Rescue and Fractalist got uh, finished up or worked on separately after, but I'm not sure that happened to any of the others as I've just okay. on the list. So, so they were, as far as you know, that all the game, most of the games were done by the time your, I don't know what you call it, your contract with Atari was over. Well, the contract never really ended. What it, uh, well, the, the two years I uh, said initially, the 50,000 quickly got into a new contract as we started pouring out lots of games and trying to expand. Uh, we, we were, by the end of 1984, we were about 70 engineers uh, wow. in Cambridge uh, helping, you know, do, do uh, all these projects and whatever and having many engineers on them in parallel. 
And so our, our whole agreement with Atari and Warner Communications uh, had grown over that time to allow us to be doing all of this programming. Here is Michael Feinstein. So you worked on Desert Falcon. Is that a game yeah. that Atari designed or that you guys no, came up with? that was an original game. Okay, so we big... had, you know, there was a game called Zaxxon yep. in the arcades, which is like same kind of 3D perspective. And we didn't, we didn't do Zax, we didn't have the rights to do Zaxxon for the, for the Atari 2600 or 5200. And so we never did that 3D perspective kind of game. So we said, we want to do one. Let's do one original game. And that was Desert Falcon. And so yeah. the, the general look, I mean, it doesn't look like Zaxxon in some ways, but that idea of that 3D perspective from the side, you can gauge how high things are because there's a shadow. Um, and then we just went crazy on the gameplay in terms of, um, you know, both, you know, we, we, we decided very, I don't remember how we decided, we decided very early on that it was going to be this Egypt motif. Yeah. And, and then, you know, Desert Falcon pretty quickly became the name. Um, but the idea, you know, how the gameplay work kept on evolving, right? So there's, you know, things to fly through and around. And then we ended up deciding like the bird, which is like the character that you're controlling, right. the falcon, was really important. And we gave that bird a ton of personality. So if you spend time with that game, I mean, the bird um, walks, hops, swims, flies, flips over and dies on its back when it gets shot. After this earlier interview with Michael Feinstein, I went back and played Desert Falcon, only to discover that I had missed the game when it originally came out, and I loved it. This sent me on a sort of existential journey into Desert Falcon, where I discovered what I believed to be a connection between GCC and Atari fans to try to figure it all out. In many ways, this game is a poster child for what we refer to as the vertical blank. It represents what could have been. It was created by the right people at the wrong time and then buried for years. If this is what GCC was making in 1984, I just wonder what amazing stuff they would have pushed the 7800 to do by 1987. Desert Falcon now holds a new place for me. I crave playing it to learn all of the combinations and see what lies beyond level 4, the highest level I've achieved. I now know that it was the last great project that the video game masters of GCC made for Atari, and Atari didn't even care. In July 1984, GCC must have felt abandoned by Atari as developers, just like we did as fans. GCC are the mirror image of Atari fans. Maybe that's why I'm so fascinated by them. They are we, and we are them. And that's why the idea of this connection honestly birthed this movie you are watching right now. Here is Doug McCray. You got this did not ship 7800 stuff. Adventure? Sure. Do you remember anything about that? Is it a version Nothing. of Atari Adventure? You know, someone, okay, high score cartridge. I know that that actually was almost, that almost was created. Yeah, so uh, basically all 7800 games had to, in, in our lab, uh, work with the high score cartridge, which we had many prototypes floating around, uh, where it would write out the uh, high score, a uh, whole high score table uh, for each game. Uh, we always viewed that was a lot about what the arcade was about is being able to put your name up uh, if you're the best. And okay. so we wanted to do that. We could not burden each of the game cartridges with a uh, memory that could uh, uh, last uh, from losing its power. 
So uh, we looked and said, well, how about if we had a double-ended cartridge that you plug into the system, then the cartridges we each plug into that, uh, that would have uh, some SRAM in it that you could write to and store out that information. So that was fully working. It was, uh, and uh, I think it did not get built because uh, it had uh, electronics other than just making a standard cartridge that would have had to be made by Jack Tramell, or I don't know how far it got. It was fully working. I think it just never got manufactured. So the things that come after that, the keyboard, typing tutor, Atari writer, basic programming, game construction kit, by the way, that's the most amazing thing. Are these all for the uh, computer expansion that was supposed to come out? Some of the stuff you were just kind of playing with, and most of the stuff was somewhat up and running by the CES that it debuted at. So Atari Lab here says that David Crane helped work on it. Activision David Crane or a different David Crane? Different David Crane. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Going down the arcade games, obviously Super Missile Attack, U, Crazy Auto, Miss Pac-Man, U, Junior Pac-Man, which is a great game, by the the way, U, Food Fight, Jonathan Hurd, and the rest, which is probably one of my favorite arcade games ever. And then comes Quantum, which I believe is one of the best games ever made that people have never seen. Um, Now, they have seen it now because Atari... The current Atari just made a new version of it, if you're aware of that. Are you guys ever consulted on any of this stuff when they go and redo it? Um, I think Betty uh, Ryan may have been uh, consulted. She, she was one that let me know about it and said, you know, it looks really cool. They changed some things in the game, but uh, the uh, initial concept is still there and plays very well. Yeah, I played this, I don't know, it must have been, let's say it was 10 years ago. And it was back when I myself was working as a programmer making browser games, web browser games. And and I'm like, oh my God, this is a web browser game. Cause you, it's like you take a mouse, if they have mouse, and you would circle things. I'm like, this is a game 30 years before it's time. Here is Steve Golson. Very early on, if you look at, so this is early 1982. We're working on Fireman, we're working on Food Fight, we're working on a game called Molecular Magic, which is what Quantum started out as. And we started, uh, the initial development was done on one of the Atari machines. I can't remember which of the color vector machines they had, but very quickly developed our own hardware and our own, uh, one of our engineers, a guy named Art Ng, did the Quantum hardware. And he did this just phenomenal job of marrying the 68,000 and the state machine hardware to do all the vector graphics and the vector fill because it does this really cool thing where it will do this little raster thing to like fill in one of the characters and the uh, the programmer Betty Ryan did basically all the software for it I think she may have had some help with sounds I think sound development came from some of our music people here is Doug McCray do you remember where the idea came from is it was it Betty's idea it was a combination, if if I remember right, between Mike Horowitz and Betty. I think uh, Mike was originally talking about drawing subatomic particles or whatever uh, up on the screen. Uh, we were using Tempest hardware, uh, doing pretty graphics. And, and what we wanted to do also is incorporate a trackball. And Betty started looking, going, oh, it'd be really neat if you could, you know, circle and grab things. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so Betty ran with that and uh, did a tremendous job. Up until this point, I thought the interview was going really, really well. But for some reason, some reason, this discussion of quantum just had me slip right back into what I call the vertical blank. And I couldn't stop thinking about what could have been. 
and then I went off on this long tangent trying to explain to Doug what I was thinking at that moment. It is a game that never got its due. It is way before its time from a design standpoint. I don't think anyone was thinking of that type of game at the time, um, of that type of action. You know, you it's 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 one of those games that's kind of like a cleanup a little bit. It's very interesting. Um, it's one of those things that makes me wonder what would you guys have done after that, right? If you given the given the opportunity, what would have come next? Especially with the 7800 stuff, because I feel as if you just got off the ground designing the stuff for the initial 7800 launch. And I wonder, what if you were given, what if in 1986, when it came out, you had three years under your belt building games for the 7800? Could you imagine what you could have done by then? Yeah, no, the, the, the 7800 system uh, was so powerful compared to the 2600, but uh, more importantly, it was more powerful than the Nintendo system. It was just coming out. Yeah. Did I really want to give GCC credit, or was there something else going on here? Was this another self-serving endeavor in the vertical blank? Was I waiting for this very moment when one of the founders of GCC told me they thought the 7800 was better than the Nintendo Entertainment System? And um, if there had not been that two-year pause uh, where Jack Trammell decided he didn't really want to do games other than potentially liquidating what he had in warehouses and maybe if he had found the 7800 in a warehouse uh, somewhere he might have tried putting it out there earlier uh, but the fact he did not pretty much let uh, the Nintendo system uh, gain market share and uh, never look back Ah uh, yes Jack Tramiel the man who led Commodore to triumph in home computers with the Commodore 64. He was forced out by the board of directors in 1984 just in time to buy the struggling Atari consumer division from Warner Communications in July 1984. This was the Mount Vesuvius moment for Atari fans like myself. The day everything exploded. The day the golden age of Atari's video games was trapped in suspended animation. Jack Tramiel had very little interest in video games. He wanted to build his 16-bit Atari ST computer as a rival to the Commodore Amiga. I have mixed feelings about him myself. He gave my brother and I an entry into the world of next-generation computing by pricing the ST far below competitors, allowing us to sell our Atari 800 to buy a 520 ST in 1987. But at the same time, he neglected Atari's video game business, including GCC's Atari 7800. And while it's debatable which system, the 7800 NES or Sega, was more powerful in 1984, the truth is Tremiel never gave the 7800 the chance it needed to prove itself. Instead, he created a vacuum, allowing clever and creative rivals to fix the mistakes of the past and take Atari's place as the king of video games. Here is Steve Wilson. In order to ramp up your production to be ready for Christmas sales, which have to be in the stores by what, September? Yeah. You know, October? So May of 84 is the huge unveiling of 7800 and 14 cartridges high score cart, they talk about the home computer, all of this stuff for Christmas, they tell the prices, everything, all of it came from GCC, all of it. So that was gonna be Christmas of 84. That was gonna be the future, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. that was gonna be Christmas of 84. And then July 1st, it all gets sold to Jack. Yeah. 
so everything gets sold to Jack and we sit down. GCC sits down with Jack, right? Jack, what do you want to do? Jack says, ah, we're going to sell 100,000 7800s for Christmas 84. Great, great, Jack. Sounds good. You know, that was sort of the Atari plan, actually, also, right. to have that many done for Christmas. But Jack says, yeah, we're going to sell them for 50 bucks. <laughs> now, original, the original plan was $150. Yeah. Okay. Of which GCC, we're going to get a cut, right? Right. Royalty. And carts, oh, the cartridges are going to retail for like 10 to $15, which was half of the original prices. Right. This is this is Jack's thing. Right. You make it incredibly cheap. You sell boatloads of them. And uh, oh, and he was going to sell a car. He was going to keep selling the twenty six hundred. He was going to have a cost reduced twenty six hundred selling for forty bucks. Wow. Okay. This is Jack. This is his idea. Right. And we're just like Jack. Well, you know, that's not that's not a lot of money. Where's the, where's the money for GCC? Jack's <laughs> like, you don't get any. Right? You know, there's only enough money for me, Jack says. And so GCC were like, no, we're not going along with this. And Jack's like, okay, fine. All I want to do is computers anyway. So who cares about games? Uh, and that was that. And 7800 was dead. As Steve Golson said, by the end of 1984, 7800 was dead. And I think I now know what I've been searching for. Through four interviews and hours of comments, I just wanted to know that the death of the 7800 affected GCC the same way it affected me as a kid in 1984. But just when I think I've gone off the edge, when I think I've taken the conversation into a corner I can't return from, Doug McRae says something remarkable. He admits he sometimes also thinks about what could have been. He too sometimes enters the vertical blank. We always do scratch our head and say, what would have happened if the system came out when it was introduced in 1984 and started shipping and we were still applying huge number of engineers to development of it. And I, I think Nintendo may not have even happened or would have happened in a much different way. And uh, Atari could have still been in the driver's seat in terms of owning the market and benefiting from you know, really being the leader in the game systems. And with that comment, it all came back into perspective. My goal was to find the credits. I wanted to find the names of the people, some of which who have been lost to time, who made these games. But there is something still bothering me. It's the idea that the head of Warner Communications, Steve Ross, called GCC the toaster. GCC was not a toaster. GCC was people. People who created an environment where technical feats and artistic endeavors could flourish. People who could have done a lot more if only fate had allowed it. People who did amazing things that I got to experience firsthand. People who did them at a time in my life when amazement was in short supply. People like the ones I see in the 1983 staff photo of GCC. People like Doug McRae. So GCC in 1984, uh, during the Super Bowl, we watched a commercial from Apple about 1984 and the Macintosh. And we had already started worrying about uh, where Atari was going to be in terms of uh, our marketing arm, if you want to view it that way, or our licensor. And so we shifted about half of our engineering staff immediately to working on products with Macintosh. We were getting frustrated with the Macintosh not having 
a hard drive, so it was really slow and really cumbersome. And so we uh, built the first internal hard disk for the Macintosh called Hyperdrive, which sold really well. And then in 1993, I think, I spun off another company from that to do uh, on-screen television guides. At, at its peak, uh, I had as my customer 19 of the 20 largest uh, consumer electronic companies in the wow. world that made televisions. All of them were paying us money to license our technology to go inside the televisions. Much of the GCC staff went on to do amazing things. There is a slide in Steve Golson's 2016 GDC presentation that lists the companies they went off to affect. Places like Yahoo, Adobe, eBay, Digital Lumens, Gracenote, Sony, Creative Data, NVIDIA, Lotus, just to name a few. Here's Jonathan Hurd. So I joined another startup, but a year and a half later, I was back at GCC because they had created this internal hard disk for the Apple Macintosh called Hyperdrive. Oh. And um, that, and we, we ended up having a company that grew to be a $50 million-ish range supplier of Macintosh printers and hard disks. So um, it was a, uh, a GCC branded, uh, wow. GCC Square Days. And then I got into Harvard Business. When I got out, I was a marketing executive, including time at GCC, my third stint there. And then I was looking around for the next uh, next thing and I thought, hey, I went to Harvard Business School. I should look into being a strategy consultant to see if that's a possibility. And I got hired by a strategy consulting firm called Mercer Management Consulting. Wow. So for the past 26 years, I've been a strategy consultant, but my current firm uh, is called Altman Valandry and Company. Do any of your colleagues know that you used to work on all the Atari games? <laughs> they they all end up finding out because it's uh, you know it's a fun fact that not only do I mention every now and then but they tell each other too. Here's Steve Golson. But then by end of '84, all the game stuff is gone. Huge layoff. Lots of people are gone, and you're left with this much smaller company that's focused on Macintosh. Well, and you were still there, right? So let's. Oh no, I got laid off. Oh, you know. yeah. Yeah, I got laid off. Yeah. So I went back to school, got my degree. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Sure. Good job. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's Michael Feinstein. It kind of led to why I ended up going into management. So what I kind of realized, and maybe I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but certainly in hindsight, is that, you know, computers are boring because they do exactly what you tell them. They, you might tell them the wrong thing and they won't work, and but they just very reliably do exactly what you tell them. Humans are not. Humans are way more complex. They don't do what you tell them. You could tell them the same thing three days in a row and they're gonna do different things. <clears throat> they're much more complex systems. And I was like, I'm intrigued about how to manage and work with humans because it's so much harder. Here is Doug McCray. This is a this is a pretty incredible list of stuff that you provided. And I know it's not done, but when you see this list of what you guys did, how does it make you feel? Oh, we, we were having the times of our lives back then. It was so exciting to be able to work with all the engineers we had, all enjoying what they were doing, uh, pushing the limits. And it really felt like each cartridge was even better than the last that we did, <laughs> uh, particularly for 2600, because we kept on getting better. And it is surprising that you can get better and better and better on the same hardware. 
but uh, you, you learn tricks and you push yourself more and people share uh, a lot of information about, oh, we tried this and this is what happens. Uh, 2600, you know, kept, kept getting uh, longer legs to, you know, keep going. Uh, you know, when I went back and started looking at all these names and trying to pull together the list, you go, wow, you know, wow. this is a really stellar team that was put together because we all enjoyed what we were doing and uh, all pushed ourselves to make better and better games. And uh, it was a fascinating time. I wish it would last another year or two or maybe 10. After interviewing four people from GCC and hearing hours of their remarkable stories, I feel like their story has been cracked, maybe just a little. Soon we'll have the credits updated and published around the internet, and for me, one of the last mysteries of the golden age of Atari will finally be solved. So maybe this is the end. Maybe now this job is done. The vertical blank will be closing. With no mysteries left, is our job truly over? I look at the credits list again. Well, maybe not everything is solved. For example, I still can't get over the fact that Steve Szymanski was working on basic programming and game construction kit for the Atari 7800. Just imagine how amazing those would have been if they came out in 1984. I mean, what if Atari never went out of business in 1984? What if game construction kit came out? What if, 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 By the way, speaking of credit, Doug McRae's brother, who owned the original Pioneer pinball machine that Doug took to the MIT dorms, his name was Scott. Scott McRae. Thanks, Scott. Now you got credit, too. Into the vertical blank. Every game we play on our 2600